Joyous and jubilant greetings, my fellow humans. Welcome back to ASM Murder, the only true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. If this is your first ride with me, let me take a moment to welcome you. I'm glad that you're here. I am your humble host, The Guru, and I am simply chuffed to have you share this time with me today. Why, grew you grammatically gregarious, gladsome guy, what do you have in store for us today? An excellent question, young hat rack. Today's episode is number 17, and we'll discuss a case that called to me. Of course, I find all my cases interesting, but as I said, something spoke to me about this one. As I went further and further into this case, I learned one thing. Death comes for us all, not for some, all, and for some sooner than later, in this case sooner. Anywho, that's neither here nor there. Today we'll be talking about an aspiring actress who was also an oil heiress, killed back in 1944. Does this sound familiar? The victim of the case is a woman whose future turned out to be as bright and as dark as an out-of-control oil fire. So sit back, relax, grab some snacks, possibly an axe. Excuse me, fellow humans, I was rhyming again. Anyway, join me as we discuss Georgette Bauerdorf. Content warning. Today's episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences, which include mentions about death and physical abuse, mentions about sexual themes, descriptions of a crime scene, and the state of a dead body. Listener discretion is therefore advised. One thing that's crucial for this case is context, to know why she was killed in the first place. If you don't know who she was, you could safely assume from my intro that she led a wealthy life. But who was she exactly? She was the younger of two daughters, born in New York. Her parents were oil man George Frederick Bauerdorf and Constance Danhauser. Her older sister was called Constance just like her mother, who was known as Connie instead of her full name. Georgette attended a convent called St. Agatha's School for Girls in New York City. Then she attended the Marlboro School and Westlake School for Girls when the family moved to Los Angeles in 1935. Her mother had died before they moved away earlier that year and may have been one of the reasons behind the move. What Georgette aspired to be was an actress, and so she moved to West Hollywood in August 1944 into an apartment at the El Palacio Apartments on Fountain Avenue, an apartment that housed many people that were associated with the film industry. It would appear to have been carefully picked by the victim. She worked for the Los Angeles Times in the Women's Service Bureau, and in her free time, Georgette had a second job. She also worked as a hostess and dancer at the Hollywood Canteen, where she danced with men enlisted in the military. On the day before she died, Bauerdorf cashed a $175 check and bought an airline ticket to El Paso, Texas for $90. She told her friend that she was going to meet her boyfriend, who was a soldier, and then on October 11th, Private Jerome M. Brown was identified by Fort Bliss authorities, 
as who Georgette was going to reunite with. Brown told Army officials that he met Bauerdorf at the Hollywood Canteen on the night of June 13th before leaving for El Paso. They kept in contact via snail mail afterwards. Now, let's go to the night of October 11th, 1944, shortly before the crime happened. Georgette left the Hollywood Canteen at around 11.15 p.m. Nothing was out of the ordinary, so she went to dance at a local club the Palladium, until about 2 a.m. When she was driving toward her home, she picked up Gordon Adland, an army sergeant who was hitchhiking and had gone to the Palladium. She told him that she wanted to arrive home quickly as she was waiting for a phone call, and this is considered to be the last time she was seen alive. The next day, on October 12th, the door of her apartment was found widely open, and so the wife of the apartment house manager entered to see what had happened, only to find Georgette's body floating face down on her overflowing bathtub, wearing only the upper half of her pajamas. The water was extremely hot, and it kept running and running all night long until it was turned off. It's believed that the culprit had been waiting inside of her home before striking, waiting patiently, like a cat about to strike its prey. Plus, authorities reported that an automatic light on the outside entrance of the apartment had been unscrewed loose so it wouldn't turn itself on, and unidentified fingerprints were found on the light bulb, even if it stood eight feet off the ground. It's believed that the culprit used a chair to reach the thing. This theory was supported when an empty string bean can and some melon rinds were found in the victim's kitchen, and authorities believed that Georgette had eaten a snack before going to her room. But as her stomach contents were examined, only traces of string beans were found inside, eaten an hour before dying. Her valuables and jewelry were not taken, but a hundred dollars was stolen from her purse. There also were thousands of dollars worth of sterling silver lying in an open trunk, and a huge roll of two-dollar bills. So, money doesn't seem to be the motivation behind these crimes. Georgette did the best she could to defend herself, even after struggling intensely. She wasn't able to avoid her fate. An examination by an autopsy surgeon found many bruises and scrapes on her body, and found out that she had been raped as well. The knuckles on Georgette's right hand were smashed and bruised, and there was a big bruise on her abdomen, and another was on the right side of her head, which might have been the result of being hit with bare fists. She was strangled with a piece of washcloth that had been stuffed down her throat, possibly to keep her from making any kind of noise during the crime. Her right thigh showed a bruised handprint pressed so hard that even the fingernail marks piercing the skin could be seen. There had been a lot of violence. Perhaps the culprit had something personal against her. This crime sounds personal. It has personal written upon its bruised and bloody face. Georgette's car was missing from the scene. It was a 1936 Oldsmobile Coupe. Google it. It's definitely a vehicle of the upper class. Very nice. Anyway, when it was found, one of the fenders had a dent, and mechanics said that the damage was recent and might have happened because of a collision with another car. The Oldsmobile was discovered on East 25th Street just off of San Pedro Street and appeared to have run out of gas. As a matter of fact, it was the same place in which Elizabeth Short's body was found some years after Georgette's death. Coincidentally, they had met at the Hollywood Canteen. 
They were similar and had a similar job, which made people suggest that these cases were related because of the similarities between the women, and there was a possible suspect for this, Dr. George Hodel, a top suspect of the short crime whose own son believed that he had committed both crimes. Nothing happened to this man, though, and the link between Bauerdorf and Short's murders was nothing more than a speculation. Now, let's talk about the investigation. Authorities reconstructed the murder, and by doing so, the investigators crafted a couple of theories which might have happened. One of them is that the perpetrator might have entered Georgette's apartment by passkey and waited until she got ready for bed to attack. This was supported by the unscrewed light bulb that I mentioned earlier. There was also the possibility that the murderer rang the bell after she changed her clothes. She was known for undressing without caring if her curtains were open or not. People believe that the culprit had observed her do this for a while until he decided to act. Another theory is that she might have met someone at the canteen who drove her home and left her on her own, returning later to commit the crime. Georgette's apartment building was soundproof, yet a neighbor who decided to remain anonymous told Captain Gordon Bowers of the Sheriff's Department that he heard intense screams at around 2.30 a.m., which woke him up. He first heard a piercing scream that made him sit upright in his bed, quickly followed by a female voice yelling, Stop! Stop! You're killing me! And then complete silence. The neighbor thought that it had been a family argument, so he went back to sleep. Perhaps these kind of arguments were common in the neighborhood, or perhaps he didn't think to be worried. It always happens to someone else, right, fellow humans? In Georgette's bedroom, authorities found a date book that had the names of servicemen written in it, and soon Army authorities joined the search for clues alongside the Sheriff's Department. A sailor was questioned in Long Beach, but he was ruled out as innocent. Authorities asked for the public for help in case they had seen Georgette leaving the canteen with an escort. Investigators also analyzed the letters received by Georgette. A soldier in particular, who was described as swarthy, which I had to Google, was believed to have been infatuated with the victim as he had cut in on her during nearly every dance on the night of her death. Knowing this, investigators looked around the USO centers and other canteens with hopes of finding him. And they did. His name? Cosmo Volpe, who turned himself in days after Georgette's body was found, and only because he read that the police were looking for husky, dark-haired G.I. You know, swarthy. Anyway, he was questioned, but he was able to prove his innocence by showing proof that he had checked into his barracks at the Lockheed Air Terminal at 11 p.m. June Ziegler, who had worked with Georgette at the Hollywood Canteen on the night prior to the murder, told the Sheriff's Department that Georgette had dated a 6'4 serviceman less than a month before her murder. He was a friend of another serviceman who seemed to be popular. According to Ziegler, Georgette remarked that the tall soldier was very much taken with her. However, she did not return his feelings and stopped going out with him. Authorities looked for him to question him, but he was never found. Gordon Adland, the man that Georgette had given a car ride to shortly before dying, said in 2012 that he learned about the murder when he read about it on the trade run to his base. 
Then, he decided to send a letter to the Los Angeles Police Department in which he talked about his encounter with Georgette, saying that she seemed nervous about something when he saw her, although he took that back years later. Sending this letter led to Adlin being questioned by an officer from the Provost Marshal's office, who never contacted him again after making this testimony. Rose Gilbert, a secretary to Georgette's father, reported that Georgette occasionally asked men to stop by her apartment for a short time, but she never asked them to stay and never entertained friends alone because she had been educated as a Catholic in an all-girls school and had very definite ideas of propriety. At a coroner's inquest on October 20th, a jury of nine men ruled Georgette's death as a homicide and proposed a deeper investigation of the case to arrest the murderer. During the hearing, Fred Atwood, a janitor of the apartment building, testified that he had heard a woman walking on heels on the floor and was awakened by a loud crash around midnight of October 11, as if something had been dropped. He realized that the noise had come from the victim's apartment, but he saw no one with her. He also said that he entered the apartment on October 12th at around 11.10 a.m. alongside his wife, and they were the ones to find Georgette's body lying half-naked in the bathtub. Two deputies confirmed that Georgette was alone before her killer lured her to commit the crime, and Atwood claimed to have discovered that the light bulb was slightly unscrewed and said that it had never happened before. Officers said that there were no signs of struggle in the apartment, although Georgette clearly had struggled against her aggressor, which was confirmed by the autopsy. Sam Wolfe, brother of Bauerdorf's stepmother, said that she didn't suffer from any kind of fainting spells. The two people who had pass keys to the apartment proved that they had turned them in, and both were declared innocent then. Not much time passed until someone came forward to take the responsibility for the crime. In December of 1944, John Lehman Sumter had recently been committed to a psychiatric hospital and had been discharged from the Navy and court-martialed by the Army, told San Francisco police that he was Georgette's killer. He went to a police station, asked to talk to someone to tell them this, and said that Georgette had taken him back to his house but didn't want to sleep with him. However, when Sumter was asked about how he killed the victim, he gave the officer a detective magazine and said everything was there. He said that he had lied because he wanted to be killed in the chair as he had nothing else to live for. Who knows what might have happened to him afterwards. This case was getting as cold as ice, but then in 1945, a note from the apparent culprit was discovered. It said, to the police, between now and October 11, the one who murdered Georgette Bauerdorf will appear at the Hollywood canteen. The murderer will be in uniform. He has since committed the murder been in action in Okinawa. The murder of Georgette Bauerdorf was divine retribution. Let the Los Angeles police arrest the murderer if they can. But of course, the murderer was never found. Georgette's body was sent back to New York and she was buried in Long Island in a cemetery plot that her family had owned for generations. A close friend of the victim's father pressured the LAPD to close the case as soon as possible perhaps to hide that Bauerdorf was sexually active and kept track of her encounters and relationships in a diary, which would become public knowledge if the case had gone on. Even if there's lots and lots of evidence left behind by the killer, this case was never solved, and it harkens back to what I said in the beginning. Death comes for us all, sooner or later, some sooner than later.
Well, fellow humans, another episode has come and gone. That was episode 17 of ASM Murder. If this is your first time around, or if you have walked with me for more than one of these thrilling, thronging, thorough dynamic tales of the unsolved, please let me say my day is made brighter because you are in it. If you like what you heard, or you just want to hear more of me in general, you can check out my website at murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D.net. You can also find my podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I also have a YouTube. Come by and say hi. Don't forget to click that subscribe button and turn on notifications for the channel. I would love to hear your thoughts. And if you have any strange, scary, or salient tales, unsolved murders from your hometown, I'd love to hear about these in the comments, and perhaps even make an episode about them if I see enough interest. Until next time, please be kind to yourselves and be good to each other. Take care. This has been your friendly neighborhood guru, signing off.